Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Anthony Artino. Dr. Artino attended undergraduate at, I'm going to give this a good try here, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and studied biomedical engineering. He has a master's degree in instructional systems, open distance learning and physiology, cardiopulmonary and high altitude, and a PhD in educational psychology, cognition, and instruction. He is a professor of health, human function, and rehabilitation sciences and the Interim Associate Dean for Evaluation and Educational Research, and the Co-Director of Research Department of Health, Human Function and Rehabilitation Sciences. He is also a Captain, the Retired uh, Medical Service Corps in the U.S. Navy. Dr. Artino, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great. It's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. That yeah, was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. My apologies. Intro- well, no, your introduction. I'm just thinking, I don't think I've ever read an introduction that uses so many different big vocabulary words. So that's um, lovely. Uh, Good for yeah, you. Very yeah. accomplished. So can you tell us more about yourself aside from the information I've already provided and how you came to work where you do? Sure, sure. So as you noted, I, I currently work at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I I've only been at GW for about six months. I decided to start a new job in the middle of a global pandemic. So that mm-hmm. that was we- uh, <laughs> that was stellar timing. Yeah. I um, assume that, that decision was made long before COVID and you just yeah. decided, let's just go ahead and do it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it sure yeah. was. Yeah. yeah. The decision was made at the end of last year and then mm-hmm. uh, and then the wheels came off the bus and uh, we're, we, we are where we are. So, <laughs> so yeah, but pri- yeah. prior to that, I was a captain in the Navy for 23 years. And okay. my last 12 years in the Navy, I worked at the Uniformed Services University, which is up the street from GW in Bethesda, Maryland. And I was the director, deputy director for the Center of Health Professions Education. So I've been in kind of medical education, health professions education for about the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so and I had retired in April and came to GW. Okay. And I wanted to ask about your distance learning degree, because it seems like the time that you got that, what did distance learning look like at that time? Because it wasn't in an era, I'm guessing, of really fast internet connections and ubiquitous online learning platforms, right? Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good point. I'm trying to think, when did I get that degree? It was back in the 2000s, early 2000s. And yeah, it was before really good internet. And, but surprisingly, a lot of it was not unlike what it looks like today. I mean, I teach courses right now on Blackboard and we have discussion boards and I mean, there's more video and there's the, the, the technology is definitely better, but in a lot of ways, the course I took at Florida State is not unlike the courses we're doing right now. It's just that the internet speed was terrible. So it right. sometimes took forever for stuff to load, which it, was painful. It did. And I was in undergraduate, I graduated from undergraduate in 2004. So I was in medical school from 2004 to 2008. And I remember they were trying to bring Blackboard online, but it was so clunky. Everyone just got so frustrated, you know, so that oh, seems yeah. like it was a real impediment. But it seems like you had some foresight and knowing that studying that formally would be advantageous because look where we are now. I mean, you couldn't have designed a better resume for the current moment we're in. So Yeah. Yeah. It was dumb luck more than anything. I mean, I had, an, <laughs> I had an interest. I was doing a lot of education of naval aviators okay. and it was really interesting, but I just, I just had an interest in sort of what motivates people to learn and how do we get people more motivated to learn? And then I, technology was sort of just up and coming there with the internet. I was like, well, this probably makes sense to, 
to explore this. So it was mostly just dumb luck, though. It doesn't sound like dumb luck. It sounds like really smart luck, but um, you don't give yourself credit. So um, I actually came across you because I was researching. Um, I don't want to use you as my psychologist. You have like a degree sort of in psychology, but I was in community practice for a while. And that job was really uh, draining for me. I was a new mom. I was working too much and I was researching burnout and I wanted to design a survey on burnout. And I basically came to the conclusion that as a one woman show, it was impossible for me to do that well in the sense that it requires, I think people like me who don't know that much about surveys assume that it's something that almost anyone can do. And then the more you read about it and I read your research papers, I was like, no, I can't do this well. And so the American Society of Clinical Pathology ended up doing a really excellent study and they have scientists and people who work on it basically like that's their full-time job and that's how it should be done. But that's how I found you. And I've been following you on Twitter since then. And you're funny, but you're also very smart. And, you know, I never thought that I would be someone who liked reading about surveys, but here we are. So that's why, (laughs) that's why I came to find you and I reached out to you. So thank you for coming. And specifically about surveys, it seems like you do, I've read your CV, you're another person who should only send that as like a PDF because of the rainforest. It's like 40 million pages long, but you consult with others a lot on surveys. You do a lot of work with surveys. What made you interested in that area of study? Sure. So it's funny that you say that about, you didn't think you'd be a person who'd be interested in reading about surveys. Neither did I. And my sons, I have four kids uh-huh. and my teenage sons like to tease me because I say, oh, I was in the Navy. I was, I worked with Naval aviators and my 14 <laughs> year old will say, dad, all you do is surveys all day. Don't, you're not fooling us. <laughs> So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a surfing nerd. A, I can I used, still run an eight minute mile. I mean, because they make everyone in the Navy run, right? So that's right. Probably, that's right. Tell them, yeah, that's oh right. yeah, I used I used to fly in Navy jets. I was so cool at one time, and now I just do surveys all day. <laughs> Teenagers are not going to be impressed, no matter what you do. No, I think, no, exactly. So, yeah. I could be a rocket scientist or a, or an astronaut, and they wouldn't be impressed. They, they wouldn't care. Yeah, you'd yeah. still embarrass them. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. so yeah, how did I get interested? So I took a class in graduate school, my my PhD at the University of Connecticut. Took a class in, I think it was called instrument design, the mm-hmm. instrument being the survey. And it was all mm-hmm. about how to really it was about how to it was about how to design a survey, but it was more about how to analyze survey data. So we spent, I think we spent one class writing survey items, then we spent the rest of the class doing a bunch of fancy math, psychometrics, you know, factor analysis, reliability analysis, all this really heavy math, which I enjoyed at the time. I enjoy it less now. We didn't spend very much time at all talking about actually how do you write good survey items so that people can actually understand what you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since that course, I've continued to be interested in surveys, but I've shifted my interest more towards the the beginning part of the process of sort of mm-hmm. how do we write items that people can even understand? Because if, if the data, yeah, you can spend all your time analyzing the data, but it's meaningless if the people just answered whatever they answered because they were trying to get through your survey as fast as they could. Exactly. Yeah. I saw two broad themes in your survey writing, and I'd like to tackle them separately. You first note the importance of getting good data, which is what you're talking about right now, and how even minor slip-ups in design, so you know, garbage in is garbage out, and it can change things in major ways. You comment specifically on the 2000 presidential election and Al Gore versus Pat Buchanan and how maybe the presidential election was decided based on yeah. like poor design of this ballot. So can you talk about the importance of getting good data and how common, when you look at surveys and medical research, are they? is this the problem that you know notice yeah yeah so i was trying to trying to get across to people 
sort of the importance of, you know, we can't make good decisions based on bad surveys. And so I'm mm-hmm. trying to think what's, what's a major decision that was made that was related <laughs> to a survey. And then in the 2000 Bush Gore election was the best I could come up with. I won't go into it. It's a fascinating case study and what can go wrong. But the bottom line was there was a, there was this butterfly ballot that was really oddly designed. And so if you looked at the data, it turned out that a bunch of people voted for uh, Pat Buchanan when they were likely intending to vote for for Gore, mm-hmm. and that and that shifted things by many many thousands of votes, and again, potentially could have changed the election. But it's just kind of amazing how if you looked at it, you'd say that's a really small design change, uh, but it made a huge difference. And yeah. that that we see that all the time in surveys. You know, not the the, the stakes aren't usually as high. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've looked at this in med. So I study. I, I do my work mostly in medical education or health professions education. And if we looked across recently, we looked across three journals and we said, okay, how often are people using surveys? We looked at all the original research articles and about 53% of those articles used a survey as part of their method, mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing. More than half yeah. of the research in this yeah. field. And, and part of that's because as you mentioned, like they're seemingly simple to do. It's like, oh, yeah. Let's just do a survey. Whenever somebody walks up to me and says, hey, let's just do a quick survey, I kind of Just, just, yeah, the yes, word just, yes, you're yeah. just like, oh, no. Right, because <laughs> yeah. I, I know that's just a bad sign. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we looked at those surveys and obviously they're widely used. But we said, what are the, what's the quality of the surveys? So we, we analyzed all of the survey items and there was about 591 items if we just looked across the items and there were several dozen surveys. Mm-hmm. About, about uh, 20% of those had, for example, as an example, there was a lot of different problems that we looked for. We, we just wanted to see, are people using best practices in the way they're writing their items? And of course they're not. But as an example, about 20% of those items used what we call double-barreled items. So a right. double-barreled a double barreled item is like, uh, how often or how effective was the didactic in bedside instruction? Right, That would be a typical sort of medical education type question. It's, it's a double-barreled question. It's asking about two things, didactics and bedside. What if one is good mm-hmm. and one is bad? Mm-hmm. How do I answer that question? And it turns out respondents use different strategies when they answer a question like that. Some people mm-hmm. think about the best part of it and they they rate that. Some think about the worst. That's probably the more likely option. And some think about both and they kind of average their answer. Mm-hmm. But as the person trying to collect that data, you have no idea what they did. Mm-hmm. All you all you have is their data. And right. so th- that's a problem. And that's the probably the most common thing we see. And there's lots of other issues that we saw. You know, another really common one is the use of agreement response anchors. So it's like, to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statements? Yeah. We see these all the time. About 50% of all the survey items are written this way. Um, But the problem is those types of items, a bunch of statements, and then how much do you agree or disagree? It's just not very conversational. It's not how we talk to each other. And it's just, it's just not a good way to get data. And oh, by the way, you confound the thing you're trying to measure. Let's say I was trying to get your attitudes about some topic, pathology. Um, And I, but I use the agreement response scale I'm confounding your your attitude about pathology and how agreeable you are. Turns out agreeableness is one of the big five personality traits. So if you don't have a strong attitude, what I'm actually measuring is how agreeable you are. And usually it's that's how, not what I care about. Yeah. Yeah, it's how willing you are to agree with me when I say right. um, pathology is wonderful or pathology is terrible. And the other thing is, um, I think that probably some number of people probably misunderstand those questions because it's not quite a double negative, but it's something close to it. You know, it's like, 
I'm setting up the question in the positive. Now I want you to answer in the positive, which means positive, but the negative oh, right, means, right, right. you know what I mean? So it's yes. kind of like, I well, kind that, of wonder if a certain number of people are like, wait, what? <laughs> so No, ex- exactly. Yeah. In fact, in fact, negatively worded items like that yeah. are another yeah. thing that we coded for. And there was a lot yeah. of those, Yes. right? You, you the, the point is you don't want somebody to say no in order to mean yes or exactly. disagree in order to agree. And we do that all the time yeah. to people. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's just and, really, it's really hard. Cognitively, it's a difficult thing for people to do. It is. and But I will say as someone now who writes a lot of test questions, that it is much easier to write a test question that is in the negative, right? Yeah, yeah. But, totally, but it's, la- totally. it's lazy. I, I understand that. And I understand why they've taken it away because it's not a good format, but yeah. it's much harder to write a positive question. And that's it's a good, it's a good yeah. point though, because there's yeah. a lot of corollaries between yeah. writing test items and yeah. writing survey items. At the end yes. of the day, they're, they're both a form of assessment. So yes. a lot of the principles are kind of consistent across the two. Yes, yes. And I have to ask myself um, when I'm writing a test question, what am I actually trying to make sure that this person knows, you know, and then just go back to the beginning and start over. It's like with a survey. So the second theme you cover is doing things correctly. And there are so many ways to go wrong when creating a survey. I've linked to a nice blog post that you've written recently. That's a nice summary of this if people want to read it. And it's, like I said, it's one of those things that when you think about in the abstract, you think, oh, I could get some good data from people. And as a person who does some basic science, it seems easier, right? Because you're not, you know, doing RNA capture, you're not in a lab or something. But then when you, the more you read about it, the more intimidating it becomes. So can you talk about some basic principles and practices if people are thinking about doing surveys that will keep them out of trouble? I know you talked about the double barrel question. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot of different principles. I cover about six in that article that you mentioned. So I'll I'll mention Mm -hmm. a few of those here. Um, the first, I guess I would say is that you, this, I used to, I used to actually title one of my talks, you can't fix by analysis that which you've spoiled by design. So (laughs) when you're sitting down and we've all done this, right? It's like, you're sitting in front of Excel or SPSS, you're trying to analyze your data and you realize, oh no, this, why is this data so odd? Oh, geez, I asked the question in kind of a weird way. And Mm -hmm. now I don't really know. I don't really think I understand how they answered it. Right. So Mm -hmm. at that point, it's way too late. So it's this Mm -hmm. idea of we got to think about it at the design phase. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's principle one. Principle two is that the way you ask the question largely determines the answer that you get. And that, you know, that Bush Gore ballot is probably the best example of that. This is the dimpled Chad, right? Yes. Yes. So the seemingly small design changes, I mean, for everything from the way it's formatted to the way you ask the question to the way the response options are are laid out on the page, all of those things, which again, don't seem like a big deal, can really change the answers that you get. So you have to be thoughtful, thoughtful mm-hmm. about that. A third is this idea that it takes a lot of cognitive energy to complete a survey. If you think about as a survey respondent, we've all taken probably lots of surveys in our lifetime. And if, if you really want to be thoughtful, it takes a lot of energy. I mean, yeah. Think about the things that you have to do. So there's, there's generally, we think of at least four things that you have to do in order to answer a survey question. First is you have to comprehend the question. You have to mm-hmm. read it and understand what they're asking. And as the designer, you want everyone to understand the question the same way. You want different answers potentially, mm-hmm. but you want them to understand it the same way. Second is you've got to retrieve something from your long-term memory, whether it's an attitude, how many times you did something, whatever. Then you've got to count those things up and maybe make an estimate or a judgment. And then you have to report your answer. And so what the point is that that takes a lot of work. And a lot of times people skip skip some of those. Like they're just like, ah, I'm just going to give a good enough answer because 
this mm-hmm. is a confusing question and I don't really have time. So mm-hmm. the point is you really want to make things easy for people so that they can get through those cognitive steps easily. And the okay. best way to do that is to is to pre-test your survey and make mm-hmm. sure it's clear. Make sure people understand what you're asking and can, can answer the questions. And then yeah. I guess I would make one last comment. And again, there are more principles, but this one I think is obvious but important to know is this idea that respondents are generally pretty unmotivated to take your survey. I mean, think yes. about it. When's the, la- when's the last time you were super psyched to, to take a survey that somebody emailed? You probably never. Well, I was, I, well, was going to mention that as a person who has thought a lot about surveys now, I'm probably skewing people's data because I have survey empathy now, right? Yeah. I take every yeah. survey that is sent to me because I'm like, oh, they need data because I know yes. <laughs> in most yes. survey responses, like what, 10% is considered good? Right, so right. <laughs> I take all the surveys now, but yeah, I'm, well, sorry, you, I'm, you, I'm an outlier. Well, you and, you and I are both the survey nerds who I, I take every survey too, not because I want to take the survey, but because I want to, I I always, I collect bad items. You want to peep their questions. I I want want to see, I want to see what they did and what what it looks like. And again, I, I use a lot of these examples in talks that I do. So, oh, um, Uh -oh. beware Costco or whoever's sending (laughs) you know, you're you're, going to show up on the internet. Um, But but for the motivation piece, the point is like, you've got it. There's two, two, two ways to think about this. You've got to encourage people to take just to even open the the link that you sent or to take. So it's the motivation to start the survey. And then Mm -hmm. it's the motivation to be thoughtful, to to kind of go Mm -hmm. through those cognitive steps. And so you got to think about that as the designer. How how do I encourage people? You know, how do I make it easy for them? How do I maybe provide a reward so that they'll do it? How do I ensure that they trust me? So can I send the survey from a trusted source? You know, you can, you can think about some of these ways of motivating them to take your mm-hmm. survey, but understanding that nine times out of 10, they're pretty unmotivated. So let's make it yeah. easy for them uh, to get through the survey. And do you believe in, I know I've, I've read a lot about, you know, like gift cards and things like that can incentivize people. Um, sometimes people will collect email addresses and then have like a raffle for something. Do you ever engage in that kind of or is that just too, is that like tomfoolery in the world of no, academic I mean, survey? No, there's, there's, there's some, there's some evidence that that can help. Actually, mm-hmm. there's not very good evidence that a raffle, this idea that if you take my survey, you'll be enrolled in a raffle. To my mm-hmm. knowledge, that doesn't, it's not really effective. What mm-hmm. actually, what actually is most effective and it seems kind of odd is to give somebody, anyone, anyone you ask to take the survey, you give them a gift. You Here's a dollar. It's like the, uh, what is it like the, the the March of Dimes? They send you an they mail you with a, a dime bill. in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they mail you a dollar bill. Okay, that's that's a dollar bill. It's not a lot of money. Well, it's not really about the money. It's it, it, it makes it, you feel guilty. Yeah, it, to it turns it, it turns it into a social exchange. Oh, they just gave me a dollar. <laughs> what a nice thing! I'll take their survey. So that approach, which is costly, because now you're sending money or gift mm-hmm. cards to everyone. You, mm-hmm. They haven't even taken your survey yet. You're sending it to everyone. But it turns out that's the best way to get an increase in response responses. But even that, honestly, is not super effective. You mm-hmm. could spend a lot of time and money doing that and you would only get a small bump in response. And, and you know, at the end of the day, everyone is over-surveyed. And so response rates are actually over. If you look across the last 10 years, they're going down, 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 mm-hmm. down, 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 because, because now everyone can do a survey with SurveyMonkey, right? So everyone is over-surveyed. So it, it's a hard thing. Getting people to take your survey is probably the hard, one of the hardest parts of this. That's interesting. Over-surveyed. I didn't know that was a word. I just learned something. Um, well, I may have just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be your next paper. So I also noted in your writing, you emphasize the need to use surveys to assess students periodically 
to find students that need help. And as an educator, I realize how hard this is, particularly over Zoom, to know when a student needs help, especially given some of your other work that you've found that people who most need help are often the least likely to ask for it. I have to imagine, though I'm not sure this has been proven, that that's even harder when these folks, these students never see you face-to-face. So how do you see this issue and how have you adopted your practice as a result of COVID-19? Yes, it's a good question. I think some of what you're getting at is the idea of the unskilled and the unaware. There's a famous Dunning and Kruger article from 1999. It's even called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's the idea that the the people, the learners who often need the most help are those that don't realize they need help, right? It's the, it's the unskilled and unaware. They, they, they don't have the skill or the knowledge and they don't know it. And so with that in mind, if you were to ask somebody on a survey, hey, how are you doing on X, Y, or Z? You, you actually probably wouldn't get a great response or a very useful response because they just don't know. Um, and this, this goes to another idea that people are generally pretty bad at self-assessment. So if I asked you generically, like, how good are you at X? Some, some, some global sort of issue. I don't know. At how good are you as a physician or something like that? Um, <laughs> you might be surprised how self-deprecating I am. Well, but that's I mean, yes. For another- <laughs> no, but you know what? You're, I, bet yeah. you're, I bet you're very skilled. And people that are skilled actually tend to underestimate. It's the mm. unskilled and unaware that say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fantastic. <laughs> And okay. so, and so sometimes, oftentimes a self-report is just not the right way to get at that because people just mm-hmm. don't know. And you're not going to, mm-hmm. you're not going to get quality answers. So I would say, and it seems like kind of a silly answer. I, th- I think it's a conversation, you know, mm. in, in the COVID world, especially where we're all now, whether that's an electronic conversation, it probably is, uh, or, you know, an email. I don't think a survey is necessarily the right approach. Uh, And and honestly, I tell people that all the time, you know, they come to me because they want to do a survey and nine times out of 10, they walk away and they're going to do something else because you, Mm -hmm. a lot of times a survey is not the right approach. Okay. Um, Okay. Because you have to kind of know something about the thing you're trying to measure to create a survey. If Uh if there's a lot of uncertainty, then you kind of need another method, more of a qualitative method, a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh I have noticed that. And the funny, I always try to have just to engage the students at the beginning of a zoom session, I usually put in a poll often. It's very silly, but I have noticed that because it's anonymous, they tend to be more honest. And the thing that brings them home with asking for help are their test scores, right? So this is kind of what you're saying, like, Mm -hmm. maybe they think they're doing fine, but then this test score comes back. That's when I say I have um, my email address or whatever. And uh, some people have like virtual office hours. That seems to be when those kinds of things happen is when they get a piece of hard data. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it it turns out we've done some research at this because again, general self-assessment's not good. But if I give somebody, I would give you a test question and you took the question, you probably would have a pretty good idea after that, how you did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of didn't know what I was doing. So really specific micro level stuff, you give Mm -hmm. them a stimulus and they, and they do it. People are pretty good at assessing that. It's just the, it's the global, it's the bigger things that we ask people about that, that they have a hard time judging. So you're right. If you've got a stimulus like a test, now it's something we can talk about. Now people yeah. are gonna have, they're going to have a better idea of where they were. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think even, I don't think it's changed so much with COVID, but I think sometimes also there's a barrier for people just asking for help. And maybe like you say, surveys aren't the right way to do it. And I think sometimes as the educator being the one initiating the conversation is helpful because there's some sort of barrier to entry. I remember looking at people who were teaching when I was a student and thinking they had their act together. And now that I'm a teacher, I'm like, I don't have my act together, <laughs> but these people yeah. probably think that they can't ask me questions because I'm right, this person who right. has their act together. They're so squared, I have to, yeah, you're squared away. I, 
yeah, I just have to. Uh, well, yeah, I just have to make sure they realize that seemingly, we all have. You're seemingly it, squared away. Exactly, we all have um, insecurities, and in that you know, I try to. I, I actually one of the things that I found most helpful is telling them like I had to go the other day and give this talk, and I didn't know about X, and I had to go read 20 articles, and here are the crazy notes that I made about it, and I'll show them, and I think that helps them because oh, they yeah. think by the time you get to the level, you know, of being a professor you have it all figured out. And the answer is absolutely no one right. feels that I, way. I mean, so, and, that, and that's yeah. a fantastic educational strategy, right? You're mo- you're modeling the very thing <laughs> yeah. that you're wanting them to do because exactly. help, yeah. help seeking, which is what you're yeah. at, you're talking about. Yes. Again, that's, that's a, that's a sign of somebody who's skilled people yeah. who, people who kind of are highly regulated, they will have no problem asking for help, but you have to, but they have to feel comfortable in doing that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. people who, you know, again, we, we've, because I know my sons are always like, I'm not going to ask for help. That's, you know, they're going to think I'm stupid. I'm like, no, the teacher's going to be like, yes, this person's asking for help. They realize yeah. that they don't get this. And that's yeah. a, that's a good thing. But there is a barrier, like you mentioned. It is. It, and it's, I think it's universal. It's teenagers, it's medical students, it's residents, it's totally. fellows. It's not just one population, one demographic. So, And anyway, it's also at, at those transitions too, right? When I'm going from uh, preclinical mm-hmm. to clinical, geez, now I'm really afraid to ask questions because now exactly. I'm in this new context. It's yeah. a small group. We're going on rounds, uh-huh. you know? So uh-huh. when, when, the, when you have these transitions, which we have a lot of in medical education, yes. it's like a shift in like, okay, I was, I was feeling pretty good asking for questions in the lecture, but now in this environment, yeah, not so yeah. much. And then in medical education as well, which is sort of unsettling is the best word I can think of. Yeah. As a resident or even as a fellow or as a medical student, every month you start something new. So as soon as you figure something out, you got to go new people, new place, new totally. experience. Totally. And COVID has completely changed all that because now I'm still not sure how a person tags along to a clinical visit on a virtual medium. It right. must be Ugh. out of this it's, world. It's anyway, brutal. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. So to move to my next question, you recently published a paper about, it was called Effects of Live and Video Simulation on Clinical Reasoning, Performance, and Reflection, which kind of segues nicely from what we were just talking about. My interpretation of this was that in-person training for physicians seems to outperform virtual training, but do I have that right? And how did you design this study? I assume you designed it before COVID, but how are you thinking about it now? Yeah, sure. So this study is part of a larger program of research that was started at the Uniformed Services University. It's actually not, I'm not the lead on this, but mm-hmm. but I've been involved uh, since the beginning. And it's, it's really looking at how physicians and physicians in training reason. So the idea mm-hmm. of clinical reasoning, diagnostic reasoning, it's, it's really one of the holy grails of sort of, if you could crack the nut on how to teach clinical reasoning really well, you know, mm-hmm. and because we know diagnostic errors are a huge problem, you know, you could, you could just make a huge impact. So Part, part of a larger program of research. And in this particular study, we were comparing different simulation approaches because we use simulation a lot. And you're right, it was before COVID. What we did was it was kind of a fun thing because we randomly assigned practicing physicians to two groups. In one group, they watched a video of another physician conducting a history and physical. And then they had to come up with the diagnosis. And then the second group, they actually participated. They were, they were the physician in a live scenario with a simulated patient. And then, then we compared, we compared their performance to the extent that did they get the right diagnosis? We had a post encounter form that they, that they had to do. And consistent with our expectations, the physicians in the live scenario scored better on our primary outcome measure, which was the quality of their reasoning. Now this may seem, they, they perform better than the ones that watched the video. Now it seems kind of obvious, 
but it actually diverges from some of the prior work in medical students and other and more novice trainees who tend to perform better in less authentic environments. So watching a video or a paper case. So the physicians, because they're more knowledgeable, they have more skill, they, they do better in more authentic environments. We also, we also observed differences in how the live group reflected on their performance. So we had them we had them perform, and then we had them either watch the video of themselves or rewatch the video if they were in the other group. And and we asked them about what the challenges were. What challenges did you experience? And the people in the live group, the physicians in the live group, they talked about, you know, they focused on things like, oh, yeah, my data analysis skills were kind of messed up here. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Those that watched, that just watched a video, they weren't actually doing the encounter. They cared. They talked about things like, oh, the the case scenario was inadequate. I didn't have enough information. So they talked about a bunch of stuff that was kind of irrelevant. They said <laughs> they said there wasn't enough information here. When in yeah, reality, were, when in yeah. reality there was plenty of information. The, the cases were developed by experts, and like the information was there to solve it. It's just right. they were focusing on stuff that wouldn't help them get at the at the answer. At the end of the day, this this work just seems to suggest that. Again, pretty simple, but uh, interesting way to go about it, that physicians, experienced physicians benefit from learning in environments that have greater autonomy and more authentic patient encounters. Uh, whereas, whereas, you know, more novice students, yeah, it makes sense. Like, the, you know, they probably have, there's too much cognitive load to throw them in with a patient. You know, let's start with a paper case. Let's, let's use a simulated uh, video encounter and have them watch that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what now in terms of implications for COVID, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, clearly, we're going to be using more or less authentic training modalities, I think, as we mm-hmm. continue to social distance. And I think that might be okay when we're thinking about medical students and residents. But if we're, we're thinking about more advanced residents and fellows, you know, we, we need to think about, you know, how can we get them in more authentic environments, because they're probably going to learn and perform in much more uh, effective ways. In doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and as a pathologist, it's it's hard to sort of draw a straight line from what you're talking about. I don't have patient encounters in right, the sense right. that I, you know, but this gets to something I was actually talking to a friend of mine about how right when COVID started, and I have a much better camera now, so I can pretty much do live sign out with a trainee. And right. it's 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 really it's so much better than it used to be. And it it, it it's pretty close to sitting across the microscope. My problem is I, if I wear a mask at my microscope, I'm like a heavy breather or something. I fog up the lenses like immediately and then I can't see anything. And if yeah, I can't see anything, yeah. I'm not a pathologist. So I've been um, thinking a lot about how different it is for me to basically hand a case to a, a trainee and it's, you know, 50 slides and it's a complicated breast resection. And I just give them the answer. You know, yeah, that's yeah. not the point that's they're not going to learn anything and so for a while i was keeping notes like day one this is what i did this is what i was thinking day two this is what i did this is what i was thinking and i think that got closer to what it's like to be a real pathologist but i think if they really want the experience which is kind of gets at what you're talking about they have to sit with me and hear me perseverate on day one and day two and day three right, <laughs> day right. four, or else they're never going to be able to sit down at the scope when they're by themselves and do it themselves so i've been putting a lot of thought into this and it's um it's really hard and, you know, trying to keep everybody safe and weighing that against um, making sure that we're turning out people who can practice medicine. It's going to be. Yeah, it's a huge not, challenge. It's not going away either. So, no, um, no. yeah. And we, we, can, we can do so much uh, with mm-hmm. technology and with kind yeah. of what we're doing, but you do miss, you do miss some of those key, especially the more advanced stuff. Like you have to interact with patients mm-hmm. in a live setting and you have to do mm-hmm. the things you're talking. It's just not, you can't get yeah. them kind of off cross the finish line. You can get them close, but you just can't get them all the way there. 
Yeah. And it's tempting as a, as a person who is in charge of someone's learning to think if I just give them this case and they see all the work I put into it, they read it and they realize what I did. I just don't think it even gets close to being the same as watching someone actually go through the process of solving the problem, yeah, which is yeah. kind of what you're talking about. Well, it's a so, huge challenge, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll get there. It'll be okay. <laughs> and like I tell the medical students, you know, just picture yourself 10 years from now, you're the one teaching and the students are rolling their eyes at you right. and you're, cause you're talking about how back when I was in med school, COVID was happening. And <laughs> right. you know, so it's like, so just picture yourself cause it's going to be you soon. So I'm guessing based on the years you completed your undergraduate training that you're a little bit older than I am. And I only bring this up because at times I feel like I'm already a dinosaur in terms of technology and adapting to the students' learning modalities. But you have a robust Twitter presence. You seem to be conversant and living in this online world. So I have a two-part question. One, have you always been an early adopter of new technology? And do you think this goes hand in hand with what you studied in your master's and PhD training in education, distance learning, all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd categorize myself as an early adopter per se. I mean, I'm you know, either that or I'm sort of in the early majority group. I think those are the terms that come from, what is it, Rogers Diffusion of Innovation Theory. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm somewhere in the, I guess, the front half of things. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not a, a Luddite, you know, I'm not like totally at the end. Uh, you're but not for, a Luddite, you're, Luddite, not, yeah, you're not like cutting right. telephone wires and stuff. Right, right. But but I'm not too far <laughs> behind. So yeah. Um, what the other terms they use with digital native and digital immigrant. Um, I'm not a digital <laughs> native. I mean, when I was, when I was growing up, we didn't have cell phones and the internet. So I'm definitely coming to this a little bit late, not like my own kids who, who are literally born with a cell phone in their hand, but, um, yes. but I'm on the front half of, of being sort of adopting things somewhat early. So for example, I joined Twitter. I think I joined Twitter in 2012, but for the first few years, maybe three or four years, I was mostly just lurking. I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable posting. I didn't really even understand how Twitter worked. Like what's like, what's a hashtag and what does it mean to tag somebody? And, you know, I was on, I was on Facebook doing that mostly for personal stuff, but I just didn't get Twitter. So it took me a while, but now, now I, now I love it. Um, Mm-hmm. And I use it a lot and we can talk a bit more about that. But um, yeah, but yeah, I, I do think it's related to my interest in technology because I've always been interested ever since I did that, that early uh, online degree of sort of how can we use technology to enhance learning? Um, and now, and that actually my, my, my interest rate more recently has shifted to how can we use technology to help researchers disseminate their work and get people to actually read their stuff. So those things are yeah. different, but related. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, basically, I don't know. And you, you seem like, you know, uh, someone who understands all these theories behind what I'm actually talking about, but it seems to me like there are two kinds of people, big, big categories. Yeah. Those who look at a new technology and think, gee, that's interesting. I'd like to poke around with that. I'm going to put you, my husband in that group. Yeah. Then there's people like me who see a new technology and think as soon as I put a pinky finger on that, it's going to break. Right. <laughs> right and right. I just know that there are two kinds of people. It's like new technology and, and COVID has sort of forced me to like sit down, be comfortable with my discomfort and just do it. But it seems like you probably fall into the group of like finding things interesting and you can't wait to like explore them a little bit and then apply them to what you were already doing, which is medical education and basically furthering people's learning. So yeah, lovely. I think so. I think so. Yeah. 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 So can you talk, you wrote a recent paper to tweet or not to tweet. That is the question. <laughs> I mean, what, what do we think Shakespeare would think? But that's uh, a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. Another, what would Shakespeare think podcast. about Twitter? Another podcast. So it was a randomized trial of Twitter effects in medical education. More generally, uh, that paper, but also you want to talk about how you use Twitter. Do you vent, self-promote? 
talk about politics, fun, all of yeah. the above. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let, well, let me start with the, the second part of your question about sort of sure. how I how I use Twitter. I'd probably say the primary way I use it is to find interesting resources and to okay. ask and ask and answer questions in this sort of community that I would, you know, hashtag MedEd. So the medical education community, it's a kind of a really nice community of practice. Most of the people I follow and that follow me on Twitter, I think are in some way involved in medical education. Mm-hmm. And so, and I use Twitter really for professional stuff, whereas I have a Facebook account. I try to keep that for personal stuff. And so I use Twitter to find articles, to post my own articles. I do use it for some self-promotion, probably to a fault, but I also use it to promote my colleagues and what they're publishing. And I use it more more recently with the politics and the world that we're living in. I use it to vent a bit, which mm-hmm. I, try, I try to do not so much because again, I try, to, I try to be somewhat professional, although I, I do make sort of goofy comments and whatnot. But but at this point, I'm not actually sure if on balance, my time on Twitter is well spent or if it's a time waster. I mean, clearly when I'm procrastinating on a project, a mm-hmm. writing project, I'll, I'll go on Twitter and spend time and, and I'm, I'm mostly just wasting time at that point. Yeah. But at the same time, I can't even count the number of times I've found interesting articles or things that were like, oh, this is perfect for this project that I'm working on because yeah. because I'm living in the Twitterverse that's all medical education. Like yeah. it's it's just so focused on everyone's posting and and sharing and answering questions. And and so I, I there's things that I don't think I would have found if I wasn't on Twitter. So I think on balance it's a positive. But I do yeah. waste time on it. Let's face it, it's a it's addicting like a lot of social it's, media. It's the internet equivalent of staring at the wall, right? Like when <laughs> a, you when totally. you're doing a paper and you're like, oh, I just want to stare at the ceiling and you just go to Twitter. And I'm I'm sure that it doesn't give your brain the same kind of rest, but I completely agree with you. It's good and bad at the same yeah. time. So yeah. But the study that we did, which was kind of cool, was the first time I had done like a truly randomized control trial. What we wanted to do that, the Twitter uh, to tweet or not to tweet, essentially what we were trying to do was we wanted to know if, because again, we were spending a lot of time tweeting out articles that we had published and articles that colleagues have published. And the question came up, like, does this matter? Does this, does all this chatter on Twitter actually encourage people to go and read the article because ultimately that's what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't know. There there had been few re- the few studies out there, but we wanted to do it in sort of our little medical education universe. So we did that. We worked with academic medicine and we took 200 articles from 2015. We wanted to use recent articles, but they didn't they didn't feel comfortable doing that. So we used a bit older articles and we split mm-hmm. the 200 in half. We randomly assigned to either a Twitter group or a, or a control group. And the Twitter group Every day they would send out a tweet that was the article title, hashtag MedEd, and then a link to the page, the the landing page on the journal website. And so we did that. And then we checked after one day, seven days, 30 days, are more people visiting the pages of the articles that were tweeted versus those that were not, right? Pretty simple, pretty simple design. And our hypothesis is that they would. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we expected that they'd go there more, they'd download the article, and presumably they would read it. Of course, there's nowhere to know if they read it, but it, we assumed if they downloaded it, they at least looked at it. I was going to say you could give them a survey, but that's probably, right. I'm, I'm just, just right. joking. Just right, joking. right, right. Sorry. That would be <laughs> more worth, yeah, yeah more, more work than it's worth. <laughs> so but here's what we found, though. We only found yeah. one difference. At 30 days, there was a uh-huh. 63% increase in page views for the tweeted articles. But uh-huh. all of our other outcomes at 1, 7, and all the different, we had a bunch of different ways to slice and dice how we looked at the data. There were no differences. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of depressing. We we're like, wow, all this work, and we're not getting a huge bump. Um, but then we looked at it the other way and said, well, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty weak 
um, dose, if you will. It's one tweet from the journal. Uh-huh. It's it's a boring tweet. It's just the article title, a hashtag, and a link. And so our thought was that we did a little more reading. We said, you know, okay, we got a little bit of a bump, 63% increase, which isn't bad. Imagine if we had a, a no kidding social media strategy where not only does the <laughs> not only does the journal tweet, but the editorial team tweets, the authors tweet. We maybe we have a visual abstract attached to the to mm-hmm. the tweet. Maybe we do a podcast and we talk about it, or maybe we have a blog. So you can you can sort of bundle a strategy yeah. of social media, and we we're pretty sure that that would really boost the the number of people going to the article, which is kind of our whole point. Uh, yes. But it was it was a fun study. It was well, I think it was well done. It was the first time I've done, like I said, a randomized controls trial. So we we feel like the we feel like the increase that we saw is actually a causal increase caused by the tweets, but it was just not as big of an increase as we had kind of hoped we might see. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely think the visual part helps too. I can say anecdotally, the tweets that I put out that have photos for my right. podcast, yeah. I put a picture and it, it goes, and people like pictures. Not yeah, no. Everyone <laughs> I think I think there's actually some pretty good data out there that that, that yeah. is the case yeah, yeah. that if you have a yeah. picture. And so I now we're dabbling in that and visual abstracts is the next thing that we want to study is okay. Awesome. How do visual abstracts influence? You know, yeah. visual abstracts are interesting because it's a double-edged sword because sometimes I think people just read the visual abstract. It's like I don't oh, need, I don't need to read yeah. the paper. I just yeah. you know, and so that's that's not really what we want them to do, but it's no. better than it's better than them having no idea. And also, if it's yeah. something they really are interested in, well, yeah, then they'll go and they'll dig into the paper and look at the methods right. and the findings. So, and sometimes on it puts, balance, it's yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, and it puts the seed in their head. A lot of times, I read abstracts quickly, and then you know, six months later, I'm like, I oh I yeah, yeah, I read know, something about go, that. Yeah, yep, yeah, totally. So, yeah. Plant the seed. So you have tweeted, I went through your Twitter page and you accurately represent it, mostly business, I guess, but you, <laughs> you tweeted that as educators, we know that a key to learning is timely feedback and the word cues <laughs> and caps locks. Yeah. And you said, uh, it seems like you found some of the experiences of online learning. And I was intuiting this. I did not know that you had children. It sounded like you did from the way you wrote the tweets uh, right. that you found these experiences less than optimal. So much like I imagine it is hard for, say, a uh, science teacher to have parents of their students be physicians and you know PhD people. How has it been for you to watch your kids online learning when you're, you have a master's degree in online learning, you have a PhD, you do survey design. What is it? Sometimes you just have to bite down on your tongue. What's yeah, that like for you? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So before I answer that, let me just say one thing. Cause it's kind of funny because I, when I interviewed for the job at GW, one of the people that interviewed me, I didn't know her, but I knew, you know, how a lot of times you just know people on Twitter. <laughs> and she, and she said to me in the interview, she said, you're exactly the way you are on Twitter. <laughs> And I looked at her and I said, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad I don't know what thing. That means. <laughs> Did you like, expect me to be? She's like, you're just as much of a wise guy in person as you are on Twitter. There you go. So, okay. so but, you got the job. So yeah, but it, it worked out. So I guess it's not too bad. But yeah, so yeah, yeah it is. It's totally painful. I mean, I really feel for the K through twelve teachers mm-hmm. here in Maryland and across the country who've been asked to teach online. I mean. They've really been given sort of an impossible task. Yes, uh, with very little resources, very little yes. training. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, there's certainly a lot of room for improvement. In fact, it's funny that you mentioned that tweet because the other day, my 14 year old who's doing virtual learning, he hit mm-hmm. the nail on the head. He's a smart kid. He said, "Dad, he's like this is this is so hard because all the teachers are doing they're doing it all wrong. All they do is take what they would normally do in the classroom and they stick it up online." He's like, that's mm-hmm. not, that's not good, good 
you know, education. I'm like, you are so right because that is. Sounds like you have, yeah. Sounds like you have another. Uh, I might, PhD I, I, I might your have hands there. Exactly, yeah, he I might, might be following in Dad's footsteps. He's yeah. the one that makes fun of me for being the survey guy, but but he's a smart kid, and I'm like, Jack, you are so right, uh, and that's what people do, and that's, I mean, that's what that's what college professors do when they move to online learning. The first thing you think is, okay, I'm going to take what works in face to face and slap it online. The problem is that doesn't take advantage of the things that the internet is good at, like right. collaborations and the social part of it. So you mm-hmm. kind of have to rethink and rework to meet the same learning objectives. You might need a completely different methodology. And I think, yeah. but again, the teachers, they don't know this. They're, they were they were taught to teach in a classroom and they do that well, yeah. but they really struggle in the online. So it's it's hard and I feel for them and I complain sometimes. I, I, I make tweets like that. Sometimes I tag the principal, which I'm sure she, <laughs> I'm sure she loves. Um <laughs> Oh, but, oh, so you know, where, the funny <laughs> thing principal. is, yeah, I tagged the principal. She's really, she's really busy on Twitter. So I let her know. The reason, oh the, the reason I wrote that though, was because uh-huh. my wife was finding that the kids were getting feedback. She was getting emails uh-huh. that they got feedback on an assignment that said, oh, you forgot to show your work. If you show your work, you can get you know more credit. And, but she's like, I don't think the boys are seeing this feedback because it's uh-huh. not getting sent to them. And we asked the boys, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. So that was where that tweet came from. It was like, listen, if you want kids to learn, you have to Uh provide feedback. I mean, feedback is the fuel for the fire. And if there's no feedback, there's no learning. And so that's where that came from. And I was just frustrated. And I tagged her. I talked to her about the feed. And she's like, we're working on it. We're working with IT. I know. I know. It's it's hard. I don't know what the right answer is. You know, I was joking. I I was joking with a friend of mine. I, this was on a different podcast about how I could show people what I do when, when I'm cutting up specimens, like people have organs taken out, right. And I'm cutting them up. And I was joking with her that I could get a GoPro camera. Um, And I think actually that's probably the best thing I could do because I think otherwise, how in the world would I film that, you know? And I think that's kind of what the teachers need to do. I think they need to have to put the iPad down, have that filming from one angle, but also be in the classroom and showing people your literally your perspective, because I think they're having so much trouble with that, but we'll see. And like I said, I mean, I'm so fortunate and so privileged that I have the resources and the flexibility with my job to help my daughter. And I don't know how people who are both working and, you know, how are you supposed to do this? And you're making that choice between sending your child to school and possibly becoming exposed if you have vulnerable members of your family. And the whole thing is like almost more than I can think about. Yeah. It's an impossible ask. I'm Yes, it is. We're all in it, it together, is. but you're right. Some of us are uh, in, a, in a much more privileged space. Yeah, you know? for real. Yeah. Um, so to switch to a lighter topic, you seem to be a fan of quippy pun-related titles for talks and articles. As someone who also tries to come up with these, since you seem to be a bit of a wordsmith, what is your process for writing these? And do you do you go through like 10 before you pick one? And if so, are you willing to share any with me that we're left on the cutting room floor? Kind of. <laughs> That's a funny question. So yeah, I was thinking about this. I don't know that I have a process. I mean, I do, mm-hmm. I do think that a title can matter a lot, especially mm-hmm. for a, especially for a paper, mm-hmm. because the fact of the matter is a lot, a lot of times the title is as far as people get. And mm-hmm. if, if we're lucky, they read the abstract. So I do try to try to come up with funny or interesting titles. And related to this, you should check out Lorelai Lingard's Writer's Craft. She has this whole okay. series in Perspectives on Medical Education. It's a really fantastic series on writing. It's everything from how to use a comma, how to write a, 
how to write a, a sentence to okay. how to craft an introduction and how to write a discussion. But, but in it, she has a paper from 2016 and it's called Bonfire Red Titles. And it's all about how to write good titles. And she talks about two goals. The first is to, is to quickly grab the reader's attention, right? That's the sort of the, the, fun, the fun part of the title. And the second uh-huh. is to somehow describe the paper in a faithful way. And mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're seemingly simple, but sometimes they're hard to achieve, right? And that's why yeah. I think oftentimes we see the, uh, we have an addiction with the colon title, right? It's the first part is like the catchy <laughs> part. And the second yeah. part is the description, just like the to tweet or not to tweet, right? It's the, it's the, uh-huh. it's the fun part in the beginning. And then there's a description of the study at the end. And so those work oh, really well. Yeah. I mean, and that one, and that, and that one's a bit overused and, and, and yeah. honestly, that one's probably so, so she, but, ta- it's, but it grabs people's attention. Yeah, right. gra- That's exactly the point. Attention. Exactly. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, there's a fine line between sort of catchy and cutesy mm-hmm. or ca- mm-hmm. a catchy and sort of overused. That one's probably on the overused side, but again, it, it catches yeah. attention as mm-hmm. far as other titles. I don't know. I, some of my presentations have pretty good titles. My one of my favorite recent article titles is called "Lies, Damned Lies, and Surveys," and that's a reference to uh, and Mark Twain. Well, of course, Mark everyone, Twain. everything, yeah. everyone thinks everything's attributed to Mark Twain. This one actually is attributed to him. Okay. He, he had commented that there are three three types of lies: lies, damned lies, and statistics. Statistics, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, his point is that you can fool yeah. people with statistics, right? You can yeah. you can bolster weak arguments by just throwing a bunch of statistics. Gosh, have we seen right. that right recently? Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. But but this is this is actually one that works really well for surveys because the same thing holds. You can mm-hmm. you can totally snow people with, oh, we did a survey and this is what we found. Right. And, when it, and with, so you, mm-hmm. and you just blind them with the data from the survey. But what I always say is, okay, I want to see what your survey looks like. I yeah, want to see. Without telling them yeah, your I want to really see. Right. I want to see what the question people. that got those data yeah. looks like. <laughs> yeah, and actually, yeah. I do that in one of my talks. I say, I give the results, like X number of people said this. And you're like, wow, that's, that's, that's really compelling. And then I say, and here's the survey item. And it's like this awful, totally biased, pushing people in one direction type right. of survey. And you're like, oh yeah, now I don't really trust yeah. the data. So, yeah. so yeah. yeah, so that's probably it. I mean, I have some other titles, but um, I don't, and I don't yeah. have a process. I just try to find stuff that's going to be either funny or going to kind of mm-hmm. catch somebody's attention. Yeah. 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 I'm a big fan of puns and uh, it's uh <laughs> It's interesting because it's either like it pops in my head right away or it doesn't. I don't right, know. I, right. I, it's it's hard for me to try to do them. I don't know if that makes sense. Sometimes it either happens or it doesn't. Right. Um, totally. Yeah. So finally, you live in what I think is one of the most beautiful parts of the country. I lived in Baltimore for a while. I've uh, had family in D.C. I love that area. I, I wish I could live there. The traffic, I think, would do me in yeah. unless I got to work maybe five minutes from my house, which is kind of impossible considering how expensive it is. So what is your your favorite thing to do or place to go when you're not working. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, DC and the DC metro area, they really are beautiful, um, mm-hmm. especially this time of year with the, with the leaves mm-hmm. leaves changing. One of the nice things about where we live, we live about 20 miles north of DC, of down, mm-hmm. like downtown DC, probably like 12 miles from the border or 10, mm-hmm. uh, 15 miles. But the nice thing is you, is you could be in downtown DC, you know, mm-hmm. at the National Mall, mm-hmm. you know, you know, visiting one of the many monuments and then 30 minutes later, or maybe 90 minutes with traffic, like you said, uh, you could be in farmland. I mean, we, mm-hmm. two minutes up the street from us are apple orchards and pumpkin patches. So I yeah. like that part where I can get, I can get the taste of the city, but I can mm-hmm. also get the country feel. And now that I'm at GW, which is right downtown, 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be getting exposed to the city a lot more. Now, interestingly, I've been to my office once, I think, since I took my job. Yeah. In fact, I moved into my office, but it's just stuff piled. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm going to be dry. I'm going to be commuting a lot more potentially. I'm actually hopeful that one good thing that will come out of COVID is that we'll realize that we don't have to be in the office so much. Wouldn't that be lovely, especially <clears> in places <throat> like DC where traffic just cripples people's totally. and uh, think, capabilities? And, yeah, and yeah. think about DC yeah. traffic now that people are mm-hmm. not wanting to metro. It's going to be mm-hmm. even worse. So, oh so yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah that I'm, was happening in, in New York City, I think, when the when this no one wanted to ride the subways. That's a good point. Yeah. Good point. So so yeah, love the area. We love to be outside uh, with the family, ride bikes in the winter. We love to ski. That's probably our our uh, down, mm. downhill skiing is our favorite family activity. So we'll do that. There's a couple of mountains local. We'll take mm-hmm. a we'll take a trip either to Vermont, which is kind of where I grew up in New England, or we'll go out uh-huh. west. So, oh, you yeah, grew up in New England? I grew up, up in Connecticut, southeastern Connecticut, okay. a place called okay. East East Lyme, Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, home of Lyme disease. Lyme's disease. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had Lyme disease when I was about eight years old. One of the oh, one of the geez. first people to have it. They didn't even know what it was at the time. So. Oh, for heaven's sake! As far as I'm I know, sorry. back to normal, but that could could explain some of my personality. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, for real. Yeah, I was thinking that I was reading about the place you went to undergraduate, and I wondered if you were from around here because I'd never heard of it. So yeah, Rensselaer. Um, yep, a good good yeah. engineering school, but I don't know. In retrospect, I'm not sure I'd do it again. It was it was a lot of work. I had to tell people all the time my undergraduate degree in in engineering was ten <laughs> times harder than my PhD. Undergraduate engineering is brutal. So brutal. Okay, but it's okay. one of the, it's one of the few things where you can actually go and get a good paying job right after school. So I'm going to try to talk my son Jack into it. We'll see. Oh, well, he better not listen to this podcast. But I that's interesting that you say that because, you know, I did a biology and Spanish degree and, and my friends who did engineering were miserable. But then I guess they graduate and they kind of are do already- well. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to go to you know, and I should and I should clarify. Yeah. I had a great time. Yeah. It was yeah. so hard, though. It was the yeah. hardest yeah. thing I ever did from a uh-huh. from a cognitive standpoint. Now I survived okay. and I did well, and I think uh-huh. it kind of taught me how to how to think. And, and honestly, it made it made all the other academic stuff I did seem easy. And so oh. in that in that way, it was it was a blessing. I just it's one of those things that was really hard. Like you do hard things, you're like, it was great. I'm not sure I'd want to do it again, but it was it was yeah. great. So that's kind of yeah. how I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's hard for me when people approach me and say, "I want to become a physician. What are your What are your tips for getting into med school?" Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, like deep, sh- deep yeah. breath. Are you sure you want to? Be, are you sure you want to be a doctor? Yeah. No, that's, it's, that's it's, not the right it's answer. Same conversation I have. Are you sure you want to do a survey? Because <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> there's lots of other jobs. You know, like right. I don't want to be that person who just naysays all the time. Though that's so funny. Yeah. Well, it was really lovely to speak with you. I know you're busy. We both have lots of things to run and do. But I I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been really fun. Yeah, no problem. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. I guess we'll uh, see you on Twitter. Yeah, for real. Thank All you. Right, great. <laughs> Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks.